Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about Dancing Goat Distillery out of Wisconsin. And with me, Nick Moss. Nick, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Absolutely. Happy to have you on. So uh, first off, let's just start off with the basics. What's your role at the distillery? Uh, I'm the head blender. I'm the, the VP of distillation um, and uh, and a VP of distillation innovation, which just basically means I do a lot of our product development. I do all of our blending and then I lead our distilling team. Um, I am an operator, so I do work the equipment every single day um, that we are running the equipment. Um, and so uh, we we are running four different stills here. We're working on getting a fifth online right now. So it's uh, it's a lot of distilling and a lot of blending. I'm taking a lot of samples most of the time. Awesome. All right. So four stills, fifth one coming. I'm going to bring that one back up later. So uh, at the top of the hour, I also want to give a shout out to a mutual friend of ours who kind of got this happening. Uh, Mr. Bill Robarge, who's at Beer Lovers of Wisconsin. Follow him. The man, the myth, the legend. He is awesome. Such a great guy. Um, and uh, he provided me with samples from Dancing Goat and a couple other uh, distillers around you guys to try out. And I was really impressed and glad I could get you guys on. So let's jump in. You know, what's the origin story for Dancing Goat? So it all started a few years ago. Um, me and my dad had been working together on a brand called Rumchata. And uh, it's a brand that my family owned. Uh, it was invented in my kitchen or my, my parents' kitchen uh, by me and my father. And um, I, I mean, he invented it all. I helped him with the flavor and with the recipe and tweaking that. But it was really his concept and his dream and his vision. And we kind of took that for over 10 years, you know, to to every big box retailer and a lot of people's, uh, you know, Christmas dinners and, and holiday celebrations. And um, late in our Rumchata chapter with, you know, um, success that we'd never had as a family and resources that we'd never had. My grandpa or my father asked me if I wanted to build a distillery with them in honor of our grandfather, of my grandfather, his father. Um, so my grandfather was a, a chemical engineer. He's built distilleries on, I think it's four different continents. Um, and he's built, I think he's worked on over 70 different distilleries, working over a hundred brands. And so, uh, and he's done everything. He's run distributors. He's run, you know, he's been plant managers. Um, he's, he's been all over the industry. Or he had been all over the industry. And so this really started as a project where, in his twilight years, as we looked to get rid of Ramchata, and he was running our, our production facility, he built it. Um, as we were looking to kind of get him transitioned, as we were transitioning the company, um, there was a few medical incidents that, that came about where he ended up uh, essentially incapacitated. And so the funny thing about working with him was, you know, at the beginning, it was always, you're an idiot, you're and your daddy, you're an idiot, never make no money out of column, you know, and he, and I kept telling him, you know, Yes, sir. But if we didn't buy a column and we wanted to buy two pot stills, you know, how much square footage are we going to need? And it always went back to you and your daddy are, an idiot, are idiots. And uh, you'll never make no money with a column. Flash forward, I got three columns now. <laughs> you know, so he was right for sure. Um, but uh, it that's really where it started was you want to build a distillery and to, to celebrate your grandfather's life and to spend more time with him and work with him and learn from him. And then he um, he didn't pass away yet but he was completely incapacitated in terms of helping us and communicating and so uh i went on a really a really long journey of different consultants and classes and all this stuff to just kind of figure out what am i doing and um the you know i've been cracking whips for a while i learned how to moonshine when i was about 14 years old um from my grandfather and then it's something i didn't really touch for another four or five years until i got to college 
And then in college, um, you know, it was always really fun to roll up to a tailgate with a, with a jug, a milk jug full of hooch, you know, and pretty clean, um, you know, cheat with the yeast. You can get it pretty clean. You don't have to take a head cut. Um, and, uh, something kind of happened when I was in college where, um, you know, marijuana became legal and when marijuana became legal, new products started coming out specifically distilled products. And that's something that really caught my attention in college because I had a lot of actual lab distillation experience. And so I started, uh, really looking at short path systems and I started building short path hexane extractors. Um, then I started looking at recovery, uh, solvent recovery systems to add to those extractors. And then, you know, at that point in time, I, I had a pretty advanced understanding of the mechanics of distillation, you know, in a closed loop system, which is usually smaller. Uh, it's usually much more controlled. It's usually under a vacuum. That's why it's a closed loop. Um, and so this was just a pretty good pivot for me. And it's something that made sense to me. You know, um, I wasn't running, you know, columns with automation continuously fed, but we were running, you know, basically a fixed column in a lab, which is essentially a hybrid pot with a column on top. And so along the way, um, we changed plans a bunch along the way, um, through a bunch of different happenstance, we've ended up with a pretty interesting whiskey inventory and, um, you know, the dancing goat ever since we opened it, it never really stopped growing. We've always just been adding more and adding more and adding more. And now we're at a point where we have 35,000 square feet. Um, we have a Rick house that can hold 7,800 barrels. And we got about, I think we got about 5,000 in there, a little over 5,000 in there as of last week. Um, we do have a couple uh, thousand barrels in MGP as well, still that we, uh, we haven't brought over and, um, you know, we're dumping source product every couple of weeks and we're filling that Rick house back up with our own juice, as well as a couple tankers of source product here and there, depending on what our goals are with the blend stock for that year. Um, but the, the real root of what we're doing is we're trying to spend our time well the rest of our lives. You know, I want to be surrounded by people I love doing things that I love. And, uh, you know, I've been obsessed with this idea that, you know, the only immortal people are on glass bottles, you know, and, and it's something that's always struck me is, is there's a fear of death that I have that I've had since an incident when I was a teenager. And, uh, and the only way to become immortal is to do something great. And the only thing I'm good at is moonshine. And so I figured this is my calling and this is my opportunity to do something great. And along the way, it became less about me and what I wanted and, and, and more about being there for the team that helped build this place and build me up and turn me into a man, you know, and, um, we're sitting here now just so blessed with just everything that's happened the last nine months has just been crazy for us. And, and, uh, it's really just a place to celebrate life and agriculture and, and my grandfather's life and, and my father's life and, and your life and, you know, my distiller's lives. And it's, it's a place for family to congregate and pass time. That's really awesome. It's a hell of an origin story too. I, I admit, I didn't do a ton of research before this episode. I usually do like I'll listen to a couple of podcast episodes. I'll listen, read a couple of articles. And um, this one, I wanted to kind of come in clean, if you will. Um, so yeah, no, I do like in, involved in Rump Machado, which is, I think it was this huge brand, um, but that's now off to the side. Um, when you were in college, did you follow the formal like chemical engineering path or was that? Well, the thing was, is I kind of knew what I wanted to do, um, but I didn't know what I wanted to do, you know? And so- <laughs> I, uh, I was awful at chemistry in high school and, um, I got to college and I was in, I was pre-med and I was like, this is stupid. And then I was pre, uh, I was business and it was, that was stupid. And, um, you know, the crazy thing about business school is you're sitting in business school 
and it, I was a freshman and I got direct admit in there and uh, I'm sitting in there and they welcome us and they go, Hey, welcome, you know, to your first day of business school, look around. You're an auditorium with 4,000 kids. You know, you're my third class this week. You know what I mean? You're the last one. Welcome. I did the math real quick. And it's like at a 50 ranked business school with 4,000 a class, the last one, you know, four classes in each, in each school at a time that puts me at like, you know, the number like 500,000 ranked business person. I was like, man, I can't be competitive. And like, what is business? Like we're studying what, like, you know, it'd be different if you were talking about like sales depletions, you know, marketing. And like, when you talk about like a market, degree, it's like, what the hell is a marketing degree? You know what I mean? It's like, they don't teach you real marketing. They teach you tools that marketers use, but a real marketer can look at a, a market and say, this is a product that's missing, right? That's something that my dad did with Winchata um, and at Beam for 20 years when he was at Beam and at Brown Foreman for 15 years, he had Brown Foreman. That's what product development specialists are really good at, you know? But, uh, you know, you get out of college with a marketing degree, it's like, and you want to pay off your degree, what are you going to do? Probably get a sales job, you know? And so I'm sitting there and I kind of knew where I wanted to end up, which is what my grandpa was doing. And I, I wasn't strong enough in math to really do the engineering route at that point in time. Cause I, I really wasn't motivated enough to kind of, to, to dedicate myself like that. And so uh, I decided I wanted to go to a distilling college and, uh, or actually it was a, a brewing college is where I wanted to go. And uh, they had a distilling program, but I had the money to get there. You know, I didn't have the sense to take a loan out. And so I just, I got an academic scholarship to the university of Iowa and I went there. And so uh, when I dropped the business, degree they 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 told me i was going to lose my scholarship and so i ended up having to take a double major and i took it in english and history with a marketing minor and my whole thought was when i get to harriet watt eventually i need to be able to catch up with these guys and the guys and girls you know and if i know how to research you know history and communicate myself english i'll be successful in anything i want to do and and so that's really what i pursued and it, it really, it, for me, it was the best because, you know, now you got MSU, shout out to John Jeffries, you have Louisville, uh, you have UM, you have all these great distilling programs now, you know, for, and that's commercial beverage ethanol distillation. And, and most people are going to say like micro distillery, right? But it's, it's really just commercial bath um, that are options now, but they didn't have those, you know, 15 years ago. And so I, I wanted to prepare myself when I did get that opportunity. And then Luckily, I prepared myself in a way that I never actually felt the need to go to Harriet Watt. You know, I had my granddaddy, I had a couple of consultants. And the one thing that I had that I'm very blessed for that I do not take for granted, and, and I'll say this out loud because I'm not ashamed of it. I'm very blessed to have had it, but I had resources. I had money. I could spend it. I could buy equipment. I could buy grain. I could take that grain. I could burn it. I could throw out that whiskey. Didn't have to, you know, sell it. You know, and that's a, that is a, that is a privilege, that is a huge privilege. And I, I understand that, you know, but there was a lot of burnt mashes. There's a lot of scorched grain. There was a lot of wasted grain. There's a lot of down days. And that was my master's degree, you know, and that's, that's something that I, I'm really proud of, you know, I really, and not that there's anything, you know, I'm, I'm looking at hiring a chemical engineer out of a Valero fuel ethanol plant right now. Um, because there's a lot of value in that education, you know, but the woods can teach you a lot too. And that's, that's what I really always come back to is every time we have a problem in here, that's, you know, thermal or energy flow related, I always got a backwards method to fix it. Even if that's just rye paste and a little water, you know what I mean? Or, or, you know, juicing up a, a coolant or something like that. It's, there's always a moonshiner method to do it. You know, people have been doing this in the Hills of Kentucky for hundreds of years, 
And you've met people from Kentucky, man. They dealing with that hook firm, you know? And so yeah. if they can figure it out, we can. You know, I'm just I'm just teasing all my my friends down there. But it's it's like I said, it's been a long journey. And uh we took an awful sir, an awful weird route, but it was it was a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. Well, I mean it sounds like fun. And and for anyone uh listening, like the enjoyment is just kind of beaming off you as you tell the story, which is really nice to see. Um so but you're right, like 15 years ago, even even 10 years ago, you know, Harriet Watt is maybe one of two places you could go if you wanted a formal degree in distilling. Um, really nothing in the U.S. until pretty recently. And even then, we're not really seeing graduates there yet. Like there, it's it's there, but it's a small class, let's say, so far. Yeah, it's mostly Watt. You know, you're seeing mostly Watt graduates that are the 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 young, educated people in the industry. Um, and uh I think a lot of those Bev ethers go to go to fuel because I think that's where the cash is at. Like I think the young graduates, I mean, like this guy I'm talking to out of Valero, it's like, you know, why would you come work for me for X when you can go and get Y there, you know? And and then once you're getting Y there, you can come here and get Z, you know what I mean? And so um, you know, exp- that's that's where I've seen a lot of those people go. And that's a shame because the career like the MSU curriculum, it was written by one of my men- mentors, John Jeffries. And that's that's a stellar i mean that's a stellar beverage ethanol degree you know it's just you hope that the, the programs expand and and more people start getting into it you know it's been one one uh, kind of latent side effect of, of the bourbon boom but hopefully one that's going to pick up in the next couple of years is just people getting into the industry of course people getting in you know without degrees just through experience and, and their own family histories and things like that but also going through these programs and and seeing that finally bourbon is a, uh, I say bourbon, but I mean, you know, American whiskey is a viable path for them. Even it is. I mean, five, it is. five years ago, it wasn't a viable path for a lot of people. It is boom. It's a great path. I mean, it's a, you, you can go get a great job as an operator, you know, and uh, especially like if you're, if you're young and listening or, or halfway young and listening, like if you're 30 and miserable at what you're doing, you love whiskey, you quit your job and go to Kentucky and take a, take a crappy job as an operator for two years and go work in any micro distillery you want. I mean, that's, that's, that's a solution. I mean, that's, I have, of everyone that works here, no one, I'm the only person with actual distilling experience. Um, everyone's come from somewhere else. And the only thing that they all have in common, unless they're, everyone's still coming from someone else. There's a lot of people here that I have history with that I brought here to, to, to help correct course or to bring specific skill sets to the business, not always in the stealing side, but the business. Um, but all my, my operators, my floor guys, my production guys, you know, every single one of them worked somewhere else one day and they wanted to work here and it happened, you know, because they wanted it. And it's, I had guys that worked for Pepsi that hated it. I had guys that worked for breweries that hated it because they work at cereal plants and hated it. And it's, Life is something I said in the intro is this is a place for family to spend time well together. And I think that's something that a lot of the people here find is they find a career where, you know, they enjoy their time spent. They enjoy what they're doing. Um, you know, you know I, and everyone has crappy days. You know what I mean? I, I mean, sure, yeah. everyone. No job's does. perfect. No job is perfect. But if your job involves taking 20 barrel samples before nine, just pulling them. I'm not even saying like drinking them. Like you're just pulling them. Like your hands are on the barrel. You're in it. You're smelling it. You know, you're tasting, you're tasting tannins. Cooper, there's something romantic about it. You know, 
And it's almost something I often say to myself is, you know, because we'll be over at the Rick House early because it's cooler, especially in the summer. We need to be, it's so hot over there. And so um, when we're over at the Rick House and we're coming back and the sun's just rising and, you know, you can, I'm a bee guy. And so when the bees are waking up, it's kind of my thing. I love the morning when the bees, when the dew's dried and the bees start to come out to find, you know, the petals that are opening. And that's such a beautiful thing to me. And it's, it, it, to me, we're the last cowboys. We're the last, it's like Yellowstone. The whole world is against us. You know what I mean? Everything from like global warming, like regulation. I'm not saying don't regulate us, but like we have, you know, village issues, state issues, compliance issues, the TTB, not that I'm having issues with those things, but they mm-hmm. are, they, their check-ins create issues. You know what I'm saying? And, and then pollution, consumers who want you to dump it now, you know, and you, you, you put so much blood, sweat, and tears into this calf, right? And then like, you just pray to God, like eight years later, it's worth five grand. You just pray, you know, and it might not be, might be. And if you do really well, like a legacy a heritage you're doing well it might be worth 25 30 grand and if people are feeling real honorary at like a charity auction it might be worth 50 80 85 90 grand you know but it ain't worth it unless you take care of it and that's that's what's so romantic about it is you we can auto, i mean i've automated this place to high heck you know but it's still you still have to go and smell it you still have to go and taste it you know and that's the that's what i love about it absolutely and and like it's you're right. Alcohol itself is and beverage. Alcohol is one of the, if not the, it's definitely one of the most regulated industries in the, in the country, if not the world. And yet you have this huge variation of what you can accomplish and, and try within that. So no, it, it's a good perspective to have. It's just going in every day and seeing what's going to be next. Yeah. The funny thing about what you said, cause you're right. We're one of the most heavily regulated industries, but what's, what's really wild to me is that it, like at one point in time, I got like my vessels pressure rated and like certified. And the only person that ever came to check on anything left the building and I was allowed to operate. And I was, I was 26 years old alone in a distillery and I got to just operate alone. No one else was there. I think one, I think, uh, I think uh, MJ was there the first time I turned on. Um, But no one ever came to check to make sure I could do this safely, that I was doing a good job. No one has ever taken a sample and GC'd it, which they should, because I do it to other people's products off the shelf. And I am horrified. Um, you know, no one, there's no quality control. There's no, no one's ever checked the boxes of like, yeah, you're qualified. It's okay. 50 grand for the permit. Okay. Here's your license. Cause you checked out that you're not in the mafia, you know, we'll be weighing and proofing your bottles off the shelf, but that's it. And that's kind of crazy. Like the amount of regulation to not have any like quality oversight, that's nuts. You know what I mean? That's real crazy. It yeah, it's like the days of, uh, I mean, this is the go-to person, but uh, the days the John Fitzgerald's living on the campus and sampling the, the barrels for themselves, but also for the laws. I mean, it's gone with everything being federally bonded in the warehouses. And that is kind of shocking though, that, I, I mean, is that something that you have heard of in, in like fellow distilleries, both big and small, that they're you know, the, you sign the paperwork and you get the initial qualifications and all of that. But after that, there's really not much spot checking. There's in this, so I can really only speak about my state. Um, and then the states I've worked at as a consultant, which is Colorado, Texas, California, uh, Utah, and Nevada. 
Um, and from those, well, Cal, oh, sorry, California, I've never built a distillery or helped someone build a distillery. I've just troubleshot columns there. Um, I'm actually heading there on Wednesday to troubleshoot a column for somebody. Um, a big one too. That'll be a lot of fun. Um, but the, uh, the, in Wisconsin, especially there's nobody, there's nobody. And depending on what you're doing might dictate like who you're regulated by. And so like we've owned, we used to own a bottling factory for the Rupchata brand and the other brands that we had with it. And uh, that we were, we were regulated by the department of ag because we were processing a lot of cream. And so there we had compliance checks where they'd come in and they'd do swab tests. And that's something I took with myself here, where we'll do, you know, tests and swab and culture things here to make sure that we're clean or to make sure we're dirty. Cause there's some things that we do like a lot on certain mash meals. Um, like, especially like my 49 malt barley, I love lactobacillus in there, you know, but I don't want lacto in any of my rice, none of them, you know? And so it's the, it's the matter of being clean, but being, but you know, if you're clean, you create a, great petri dish for whatever you want to introduce to flourish you know but if it's competing with you know like brett or other stuff i mean that's disgusting that's that's no good you know um and so there but no one ever no one to my knowledge no one's so i've been audited our distillery has been audited um and that is i'm one of the only distillers i know that's been audited uh, i'm past flying colors no problem you know but that's the most oversight anything anyone's ever seen i've i've been looking at other distilleries out of bankruptcies before because I, I do a lot of we do a lot of bankruptcy purchasing of process equipment and stuff like that and when you look at people's inventories especially when they just started producing a lot of people do a couple of the same tricks like they're like so like five star five star champagne yeast a lot of people sometimes call it like daddy d-a-d-y which is like a dried activated distillers yeast those are the same strain but they're very similar in composition um I'd actually take the daddy out of there. I'd actually look at like an EC 1118, which is a very popular home moonshining and home winemaking yeast. Um, so like all of those are very popular with, you'll see a lot of young distilleries try that or use that because it's what they could buy off of Amazon or it's what they could just buy at a, like a home winemaking store. And it's, it's great because uh, you, you don't have to take a head cut with it because it doesn't throw off methanol because champagne's meant to be drank. Right. And so that it's, if they use a yeast that doesn't throw off that compound, doesn't throw off a lot of that compound but then it has a crap ton of N-propanol. N-propanol is, is, is a fault and it is a dirty, it's a bad head cut, it's a dirty head cut. Um, it's not as hazardous as like a high concentration of methanol, but that's sloppy work. That's stuff that's not going to taste good four, five, six years online. And the other thing about it too, it's going to be very plain. It doesn't have a lot of conjure. It doesn't have the ability to transesterify in a really good way. It didn't create a ton of carboxylic acids, especially if you weren't really adjusting pH. And so you see a lot of like, I'll see a lot of young inventories just like dirty with N-prop. And it's like, as soon as I see that, you know, I'll GCMS here. As soon as we see that, nope, done. Not even gonna look at it. If it ain't in there, buy the whole lot, as long as it's the right price. But if it's in there, if it's in one, one drops enough, we don't want any of it. Um, and so it's in, but like, that's something that a lot of people would catch right away. Like if they were, if like regulatory, if regulatory ever looked at it on GCMS, they know right away. But regulatory, all they do is they go to the shelf, they grab your bottle, they put it in a Mettler, they put it in a, in a Anton Parr, they get the proof on it and they volumetrically weigh it. You know, they don't do any quality until there's actually a reason to. I should just jump in uh, GCMS, grass chromatography, mass spectrometers. Yes. Yeah. Those in HPLC are what's really effective for distillation for quality. HPLC more for, uh, I think, gin, it's very, very, very good. Um, and then ferments, it's pretty good too. And then GC for finished product and for ferments as well. Gotcha. So it's fascinating because the, um, the previous guest, I'm not sure the order in which these will air, but the previous guest I interviewed was uh, Pat Heist from Wilderness Trail. Ah! So, 
Yeah. Whoa, so, why didn't you tell me? Oh, man, I'll call him when I'm off with you. Well, he's going to blow me out of the water. Thanks for telling me you're talking about your pee. No, no, I love that guy. I I joked with him. I listened to his episode of um, when he was on Distillers Talk with uh, like Alan Bishop and Christy Atkinson. And I was like, look, I I started as a biochem major. I ended up with a double double history degree, but I started as a biochem major. And even knowing what I know about it, like yeast and and grass chromatography and all these different terms and and, uh, chemical combats and all that stuff because I was really stupid and I continued the biochem through orgo two and then converted to history. <laughs> so yeah, that was a waste got that part there. Um but anyways I you know but I was talking to him and I was like I know I can't get as deep as you got with like Alan over there with the because you know you and Alan kind of I've talked to Alan before too and you know you and Alan throw off very similar vibes of like you know you've got the the knowledge that you might gain in uh, you know, in a degree program, but also very clearly the knowledge you just get from just hands-on that you cannot get anything other than hands-on. But um, yeah, uh, Dr. Pat was fun. He was a fun interview to get back into the thing. I assure you that you're no blowing out of the water, no competition between guests over here. Uh, but I mean, being very honest, like this is completely different angle than I thought the interview was going to go in. And I am very happy I didn't do a ton of research into it because this is fun. Yeah, but I'm, I'm here to have fun, man. Yeah, when it goes differently like this. Um, all right, so where do I want to go next with this? Because there are so many things that I want to talk about. But uh, oh, actually, yeah, one thing I wanted to ask first was it, let's say you, you, know, you come across a distillate with uh, the N propanol in there. Is there, you know, is there anything you can do to save that distillate or is it just, can, or is it just, you know, toss it? See, so you could, I mean, you could, it's, uh, you could save it. I mean, you could probably sequester it in some way, but that'd be some pretty advanced chemistry that I wouldn't really, I, I don't even know if it's worth pursuing for me. You know what I mean? I think the the big thing with me is if I'm looking at a lot, like if I'm looking at like purchasing like 1500 whiskey barrels or like 750 whiskey barrels and they got to end propping them, um it's not the end prop isn't always a problem it's the what's not in there you know what i mean it's the other carboxylic acids that that really would have created more flavor more esters you know dr pat is somebody who who's really keyed in with that um and and wilderness trail yeast are, are, are firm solutions yeast are they're my favorite i got i literally have we ran 3800 gallons uh 917 this week and uh dr pat i work with dr pat and when i said i work with dr pat i mean you don't you don't gotta be that much work you just email him your question he tells you exactly what to do you know my problem is following his directions because i'm always trying to get a little moonshine on it but um yeah he doesn't like the way i adjust my phs sometimes he just wants me to leave him alone um at first he's telling me leave it alone leave it alone leave it alone um but i i'm i have very specific goals with what i'm looking for flavor wise and so he he taught me ways to get there um but with NPROP specifically, it's, 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 it's indicative of, of other things of just carelessness and inattentiveness and, you know, a complete utter lack of a head. It's just worthless, man. It's where it's swell, you know, throw it, a, throw it. I mean, I, I buy it and put it in a plastic bottle and, and sell it for rail booze, but I don't sell rail booze. You know what I mean? Especially right now, there's not enough glass in the world for me to be bottling rail booze. So um, it's uh, absolutely. You know, it's just, it's, it's the world is full of whiskey and some of it's absolute crap, you know, you know, the, I guess the things that you could do that a lot of people don't think about is like, well, the only, the only shame is it's, it's aged. Right. And it's like, if it was clear, it's like, screw it, man. Let's, you know, there's a couple things we could do if it was clear, but you want to save that 
you want to save the tannin you have extracted and the transesterification you have extracted and the flavors you have developed. But the one thing you could do with it is if you put it on a loop through a carbon filter and you oscillated your filters and just kept hitting them, hitting them, hitting them, hitting them, hitting them. And then when you're changing filters, like when you're, when I'm saying oscillate, I mean like on a double pump cart, you can go from this one to this one, to this one, to this one, to this one. Like there's two different uh, filters on there. And so the reason you do that is your filter's exhausted and you can change it out. Um, so we reuse carbon. And so we clean it with steam that reactivates it. That kind of clears out the pores that create that static ability to trap compounds. But if you, if you researched it through uh, carbon long enough, you'll take all the color out of it. You'll take all the flavor out. And eventually that end prop would get bound up in there too, or enough of it that it wouldn't be, but then everything else is going to be gone too. You know, all those fats and lipids. And so, but then what I would do with that is I'd make uh, vanilla extract out of it and sell it for like 50 times the value. That's just not a bad idea yet, but it's, it sounds like there's really like nothing to, it's Man, so I'd rather make, to salvage it. Yeah. I'd rather make, well start making let yeah. someone else put that in some swill, man. I'm gonna keep making some good booze. They need yeah. rail booze somewhere, you know. Doctor, I gotta keep that for patent business. I gotta keep buying for good ferments, you know. I mean, I think that's a good transition actually to um, you know, talk about the the setup that you've got. But the one question I have to make sure we answer first is why dancing goat? Why that? <laughs> yeah, so that's a that's a good one. So um we uh we got farther on the project than we did on marketing. And that's very apparent from kind of how big we are and how unknown we are. And when big, I mean, literally the facility, like the infrastructure facility, like the, the barrel warehouse. I mean, we actually have a five-story Kentucky South Rick House in Wisconsin, you know, and no one knows who we are. I mean, if you ask who Dancing Goat is outside of like five states, like no one's going to know who we are. Um, but uh, the, um, the, uh, I'm sorry, what were we talking about? I mean, I got, what were no, we it's okay. <laughs> okay. The, uh, the name Dancing Goat. Oh, the name Dancing Goat. So, we got further than like with the, cause we, we can execute, like we know how to fill glass and we knew how to do all these things. And my dad was busy. He's a marketer. He was busy marketing and doing his stuff with him, trying to running the company. And so we got further along. It was time to make a decision. And uh, we had all of our equipment being built and we needed a building and it was either buy a pre-existing one or, or build one. And we were looking in New Glarus and we actually, we toured the um, New Glarus Brewing Company's old brewery. And as I'm touring it, there's somebody there from New Glarus who's showing us around. And uh, as we're going through the building, I'm walking through and, and the other guys that we're with are saying, all right, what's your vision? What are we going to do? And I'm sitting there. I'm like, OK, well, um, OK, we already got boiler room, but we need another set of boilers. We knock that wall out. If we knock that wall out, we can build a stack up the top. If we build a stack on the top. We can put a column in the stack. We can hide it like they do at Willet. You know, Willet has a huge column. They hide in the smokestack. Um, and so then we can hide it in there. Put the pot still in the center. No one will ever know that we're running everything in the column first to strip. And then out here, and, oh, and here's the big thing is a, um, we're in New Glarus. And so New Glarus is all facade, Swiss A-frame facades. And so uh, all the buildings on Main Street have to have the Swiss A-frame facade and so do this building. And so the, the front of it's beautiful. And so uh, the one thing I did say is I was like, we need more loading bays. We need more egresses. And so we were talking about what we're going to do out front and inside. And then when I started talking about filtration needs and the setups that they already had that we could probably purchase, the guy goes, he's like, what are you talking about? He's like, what are you going to, what do you, what do you build a pharmaceutical plant here? I like, I'm like, no, man. I was like, we're, we're going to build a kick-ass distillery in here. I mean, this place is perfect. I mean, you have half the, I was like, and we could buy all this equipment. And he goes probably about like a half or a quarter of it. And I was like, great. I was like, that's great. I mean, we're going to build a kick-ass facility. We'll be started like that. And so we left and as we're leaving, I'm like shaking this guy's hand. I'm like, all right. I'm going to go get the checkbook, call my daddy. We're buying it. We want to move in quick, you know? And, 
call them 35 minutes later and make an official offer and the building's no longer for sale and they built the distillery in the exact building sorry that's my bizarro world Uh, they built the distillery in the exact building that sounds very close to what i would have laid out so as a prideful vindictive young man are you familiar with the the nuclear brewing company spotted cow beer not particularly no Spotted Cow in the Midwest is very famous because uh, it's not sold outside of Wisconsin. It's a farmhouse ale. Um, they're like the original craft brewers of Wisconsin. They're very liquid. They have a lot of money. They do very well. Um, but they never want to distribute outside of Wisconsin for some reason. And so it's, it's the type of thing that like if you have family members from like Minnesota, Iowa, Missouri, Illinois, all the way down to South Kentucky, Indiana, and Michigan, and you're going home for the holidays, everyone's going to ask you, you bring Spotted Cow, you bring Spotted Cow. Cause they think it's like our thing. And so I'm leaving and I'm like, screw these guys. I'm like, these guys screwed us. They stole our idea and they're going to get a head start on us. And we're going to put them out of business in their own backyard. And so we started looking for, cause this is pride and hubris, right? Like, like think about like, if I was going to, like, I went to go tour, like, I don't like Lagunitas, you know what I mean? And they decided to build a distillery there. And then I'm like, okay, I'm going to move to Lagunitas and put them out of business. It's like, no, you're not. You're never going to do that. But anyways, we looked for a place in New Glarus because I was like, we're going we're gonna to move. Eventually, we're moving in the big brewery, right? And this is all young hubris. This is before I ever burnt a batch, before I ever cried myself to sleep in the distillery. You know what I'm saying? And so um, a lot of learning to do up still. And so uh, we're sitting there and, and we end up going to this mini golf course. It's right on the main drag. It has the A-frame. It's beautiful. And um, my dad's like, all right, what are we going to do? And it's me and my dad sitting there. And I'm like, all right. So we can put a column in the middle. We can put a pot still right next to it. No real way to hide the column, but that's fine. I think the column's pretty cool. You know, tasting room here. Um, we're going to have to put on about 5,000 square feet. It looks like we might be in a floodplain. We're going to have to build this up, bring in a bunch of dirt. But that's pretty good because then we can add egress and we can add loading bays. We're going to be all good. And as we're sitting there talking, my dad's like, okay, great. We're going to level the uh, mini golf course. And I look, I'm like, hell no. I was like, no, we're not touching the mini golf course. I was like, think about this. Tasting room is the mini golf course, okay? Put a glass dome on top of it, put in heaters. You're always outside. You can never be inside. We can cool it in the summer. In the winter, you're still outside. So you're outside, glass top, you got heaters, and you can go mini golf in the winter and have a couple cocktails. That's like the most Wisconsin thing I've ever heard of. What do you mean we're going to take out the mini golf course, you know? So we're sitting there, we're bickering about it. And real estate agents head is going back and forth. Like what the hell's going on? And then all of a sudden we hear something. It's like, a, and we're like looking around. We can't like figure out where it's coming from. And then you see a goat sticking its head out. There's a clown. There's like a clown hole. You know, like mini golf, they have like the features. One of them was a, a, like a clown. And out of the clown's mouth comes this goat. And it walks right up to my dad. My dad's 6'8", about 300 pounds. I'll be polite. I'll call him 280. Uh, he's sitting there, you know, all corn fed. And this thing sticks its head through the fence and it's kind of like, meh, right in his face. And uh, we're trying to ignore it because like the realtor's there and she said, ignore it. And so we're throwing money around, pricing around, like what it'd be cost to get this going, trying to have a really serious conversation. And this goat just keeps going, going, going. And it's like the, it's like a zombie of the walking dead trying to walk through the fence right at my dad. Next thing you know, like another one must wake up because another one comes and another one comes, and another one comes. And we have these three goats. We actually had to leave because it was so loud. And so, uh, you know, fast forward a little bit. We went by that building, ended up coming to a new community and we ended up doing a new bill ourselves. And uh, 
And one of the things that we wanted to do is put goats on the roof because um, my grandmother was a first generation immigrant from Norway. And so she, uh, you know, born in Oslo, from Oslo, went there every year uh, to visit her family. I had still have a ton of family back there. Um, and uh, she grew up in a, in a sod roof house and their goats would, you know, it was built inside of a hill in the village and the goats would just walk straight out onto it because it was level and they'd eat the sod. And so we joked that we were going to put sod on the roof and the goats have to eat it. And so we, uh, we were getting the engineering done. This is a prefab building. Um, and we we're getting the engineering done. I was like, it needs to be weight bearing. And they're like, what do you mean? You're going to, you have equipment up there. And I was like, no, uh, we're gonna put some livestock up there. He's like, what do you mean? <laughs> I'm like, we got to put some goats up there. And he's like, you're going to get the fainting goats. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm getting them fainting goats. And I go, uh, I go pygmy, the fainting pygmy goat. Then we get some Nigerian dwarf goats too, which they don't faint, but they look the same. And so, uh, beautiful goats, beautiful. And so they get pretty far down the road is because like sod's a lot heavier than I thought it was, man. They get pretty far and they would have to have a perlite layer for drainage and all this stuff. So we got pretty far down that road and they reached out to somebody as a consultant. And then we got to stop and desist, a cease and desist letter from a restaurant in Door County called Al Johnson's. I'm not sure exactly where it's at. It's up towards Door County, but they have goats in the roof. And this is crazy. My brother, that? Like, dude, sorry, my brother's a pharmacist. Yeah. What are the odds in, in Wisconsin, they do it and they've successfully defended this in court about 10 times. So they have precedent. We're never, my brother's a pharmaceutical patent litigation attorney. He only does uh, cases with at least six, or I think at least eight zeros is what I always usually say. Huge cases. Right. And he's telling me, he's like, waste of time, man. They got precedent. It's like, wait, what? I was like, dude, I was like, you can't do it. He's like, can't do anything. He's like, they're going to, they're going to win. They're going to win. You don't waste your time. And so then we decided we we're going to put them in the trees. So I got some trees out here where my bees are at. Um, and uh, we we're going to build out of pallets and old barrels, just like levels. Cause they're, they're very curious. The Nigerian dwarf specifically is a very curious goat and they like to climb on things. They like to escape. And so we figured we'd fence them in and give them a bunch of stuff to climb. But then like their local ordinance, you can't have a petting zoo. And so we end up, we don't have any goats on site here. We can put them at the Rick house. We're hoping to put them over there, but, um, it's kind of sad that we don't have any, you know, being the dancing goat. But what I really like to say is, you know, me and my daddy are goats. Um, you know, I had, uh, I had all the, all the money we needed and we just needed my grandpa and he went down and he couldn't help me. Life gave me a tin can, but I made a lunch out of it. it took me a couple of years. And that's how I really look at it is, is, you know, if life gives you lemon, screw it, make a gin and tonic, you know? Um, and that's really how I look at goats. I look at them as their, prideful and unabashed and they're they're unwavering and, and they have integrity and they're strong-willed and you know they'll make a meal out of a tin can and that that's really how i look at myself and so the the dancing goat stuck and actually the dancing part came from um <laughs> uh a friend of ours um well he he had heard he's a marketing guy he has wine out of temecula and uh he he had heard that we were looking at doing something with goats and he sent us a whole buy like a binder of like brandy and logo stuff for free and it was dancing goat. And I asked him, why is it dancing goat? He goes, cause I just can't get the image of you in Vegas on that table dancing out of my head. There's one night we were out in Vegas and I got up on a table and started dancing. And he's just like, he's like, it's your soul. It's your spirit. It's who you are. You're the dancing goat. And, and so the, what I like to say is we are the dancing goats. We don't take life too seriously. We're always looking to have a good time and please give us a tin can. Cause we're hungry. Can't argue with that, man. That's an awesome, that's an awesome <laughs> story. Like, I was talking to people who are just good storytellers, you know, 
So I'm a rambler. You know what I mean? That's the thing is I'll just start talking, you know, I'll just start talking. That's the thing with distilling, man. You just, it's a lot of hurt. If you're doing your job well, it's hurry up and wait. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there's a lot of time to bullshit. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll go with me. Um, so, I mean, the next place to definitely want to go is just, just your, you know, your setup. So you're saying you got about 33,000 square foot, square feet of space, uh, four stills, if I remember correctly, three columns. So one pot or one hybrid. So we got, uh, we have, we're at 35,000 square feet. I have a uh, head frame column, which is a single pass column. We can make, uh, we can make 192.6 from grain, or we can use it to make whiskey. I usually let mostly to strip. Uh, I have a uh, 2200 liter Carl hybrid pot column. And so it's a, a five plate uh, with a deflagamator on it. And so that we use to finish a lot of the whiskey that we're making on the, or that we're stripping on the head frame. And then we're also using that to make our gin. That's where all the Destor gin's made. And that still came out of Destor. Uh, we have a 240 gallon pot still that I, I helped build with a friend of mine, uh, Castle. He's the man. He's the absolute man. Uh, he took a, his base design that he sells to people and then just tweaked some things to make brandy that I wanted uh, capabilities to do. Um, and that has interchangeable heads. So that's a really versatile one. So we have a column for that. And then we also have a finishing head with like a, a traditional OG bulb on it. And then also a, a stripping head that's a little more high efficiency, like an A. And then uh, we also have a 18 inch Vendome column with a doubler. Um, and so that thing is, we're just getting that online now. That thing is awesome. I have another, I have a 25 inch Carl stripping column that is not currently in place. My plan for that is to hack that apart and then I'm going to hack the head frame apart and I'm going to mate them. And I'm pretty sure I can feed it at 4,400 liters an hour, which would be pretty dope. Um, and then, uh, yeah, that's significant. Yeah, it's pretty cool, man. You know, that's real cool. And so, uh, and then, uh, we have, and then of course, like I have a, va I have, I have a vacuum still, uh, in the lab, in one of the labs I have, a, I mean, I have like four stills in my garage at home too. Um, and then, uh, uh, we, we have actually, we have, I have 17 stills in my gin. We have a gin Academy upstairs. So you can come in and learn to make gin. So we have stills up there too. You can use that we, that I use sometimes. Um, it, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stills here. There's a lot. I'm looking at building a 4,000 gallon pot still. Um, that'll probably complete the set. I think, um, that'll be here in probably nine months, I'd say 10 months. And so, um, yeah, we got some, we got some tools. We got some, those aren't small columns either. None of them are, you know what I'm saying? Those, those are the, the 12, the head frames at 12 and then the, uh, the Vendome at an 18 and then the Carl at a 25 is that's their, those are healthy sized. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, you, first thing after the stills is, you know, thinking about what goes, what goes into the stills. So, um, I do want to go to, onto the, to the products at some point, but I, first I want to jump back to, you know, a lot is made, for example, in, uh, in like Kentucky, Tennessee, even in Southern Indiana about being on the limestone aquifers and the limestone shelves and having this very special terroir that they're dealing with, whether they use the word or not, um, as a distillery, a distiller and a distillery in Wisconsin uh, and in your area of, of Wisconsin, uh, what kind of differences do you see and do you have to deal with when you're, whether it's from the grain, the water, the environment that you have to deal with? The Whiskey Ring Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. Impex imports premium and rare whiskey, gin, rum, mezcals, liqueurs, and cordials from all over the world, from Scotland to Japan to Israel, Belgium, and Wales. Whether it's Kilhoman, Pandaren, Port Escague, 
Glenallaki, Ohishi, Fukano, M&H, Ardnamurkin, Black Tot, and more. There's guaranteed to be something in the Impex portfolio you'll love. Impex also oversees some of the most prestigious independent bottlers in the game, including Single Malts of Scotland, Single Cast Nation, Adelphi Selection, and its own Impex collection. Take a look at their site, impexbev.com, or reach out if you're curious about their offerings. I'm proud to have many of their bottles on my shelves and love sharing them with friends whenever I can. Thank you to Sam and to the team for joining the Whiskering Podcast as guest and sponsor. So there's a couple challenges that we have here. You know, I'll go to the water first. A lot of people want to talk about Kentucky limestone water. And yes, they, they do have limestone aquifers there for sure. And yes, calcium carbonate is, is great in fermentation water. But I, I just, I find it really hard to believe that anyone's taken well water and, and proof and whiskey with it. You know, I just, I, I have a really hard time believing anyone's taken well water for a ferment without filtering it in some way, you know, um, I got a hard time believing that someone in Loretto is taken out of a pond and using it as a ferment. You know what I'm saying? So there, there's no way that water's not being cleaned up in some way. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll be very honest. The groundwater in Kentucky is much better than the groundwater here. Uh, our propensity for agriculture in this state is the reason why I came here. Uh, the reason why we built here for the most part. Um, but it has left us with some challenges. And that's one of the things that we've championed in our, in, in what we want to do. Um, at the dancing yard and making booze. And so water is the first step. It's really, 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 really hard. It has a ton of iron in it. I'm at the, uh, I'm at the median. If you know, if you talk about your pet, you know that you can't have iron in that water. And so we partnered with the village and we do a lot of compliance checks on their water filtration, their system. Um, we pay for testing for them. We pay for consultants with them because we really want the iron, the water coming here with no iron. We don't want to deal with the iron in here. We just want to monitor it to make sure it's not too hot. And so we've embracing the Toyota way. We have challenged them as a partner to grow and they have, uh, which was, is awesome. Um, and, uh, water in and of itself, um, it is, it's, it's not the right pH that you'd really want to be optimal. And so I really like, uh, I really like lactic acid. I really like lactobacillic, uh, lactobacillus, the, the bacteria. Um, we're looking at a couple different water options right now. One of the things that I was going to do is a, a tank, like a limestone tank to kind of have that. But like, from my perspective, um, I don't really think a tank, there's not a lot of soul in a limestone tank. You know what I mean? I'm, I want to do things that have a lot of soul in them. If that makes sense. Um, and so I'll just pitch the calcium carbonate in the further. Um, but the, the, you know, this is a product that is 90% water, 80% water. And so that is the most important ingredient at the end of the day. Well, it's hard to say that because there's so much grain that goes into it and the yeast are really, there's nothing that's more important than anything else. It's all really important. Um, and you see that with efficiencies, you can't get efficient unless everything's in line. You're not going to have good yields. You're not going to have good throughput in your stills unless everything is perfect from your, your grain size to your, your yield, how much alcohol is in there, how much water is in there, how much water do you use? Um, and so water has been a big challenge. Um, I'm, we're looking at two, uh, big canister filter to add on for our, our big addition or an automatic lactobacillus doser, which would be really cool. Uh, my friends at Eagle park got one of them. Max has been helped me look at that. So, uh, and I think that, uh, our buddy Bill is a big fan of Eagle park as well. Um, the grains themselves. So we cook organ organically grown Wisconsin grains only except when it doesn't make sense from a flavor perspective, I will not sacrifice. I will not sacrifice flavor or a goal of a distillate for the grain, if that makes sense. And so 
to my knowledge, we're the only people in the country that are cooking this, or there's two, I think there's two distilleries in the country that are cooking this right now. It's called Danko Rye, D-A-N-K-O. And so it is a, uh, it's a hybrid variant. It's from Europe where most of the really good distilling ryes come out of. Uh, and Danko is a, is a rye that is, I like to say it's good for our farmers, it's bad for us. It has a little bit lower and like, that's a really relative term, right? Cause it, it's not, it's a negligible difference in starch content for the most part. Um, but it's a little lower in starch content, but what it does, it germ- it'll germinate under 40 degrees. And so for our farmers up here in Wisconsin, like, you know, I have a lot of, I'm in South central Wisconsin, but I have a lot of farmers up in Northern Wisconsin. And then I pull a lot of grain off of Washington Island. And so things that'll germinate in the cold are really important to us. Things that'll yield well for them are really important to us because our secondary mission is to distill responsibly. Our first mission is to have fun and to love each other. Our second mission is to distill responsibly. And so, and in terms of the environment. And so we have a lot of runoff issues here, agriculturally related to Monsanto and Brees's, you know, uh, programs. So are you familiar with like their agricultural programs? So like, if you're, if you, yeah, like if you're a yield chaser, like you're doing like BT2 Dent off Monsanto, you go there, you, you buy the program and you go, hey, I got 50,000, conti- I got 5,000 contiguous acres and they'll, they'll pull it up on a satellite. They'll tell you exactly how you're going to plant all of your rows and they're going to give, they're going to sell you the herbicide, the fungicide, the pesticide, the soil amendments, the nitrogen, the phosphorus, all that. exactly for the seed that they've bred that'll do well at your latitude and they can tell you within one bushel so within about 56 pounds how much corn you're going to yield that year it's really consistent but it doesn't stay in place that nitrogen runs off that's why they reapply it three times during the year every year and what happens in in madison specifically where where i spend a lot of time as a young man um trying to meet women by the lake this is before i was married you know is you get these algal blooms right it's a blue green algae what happens is the red phosphorus runs off from the farms and it gives these guys, it gives the algae food and they, they flourish, they grow and they start to secrete cyanobacteria. So cyanobacteria is hepatoxic. It, it will kill, uh, it will kill organisms. Um, specifically, the one thing that we see here is dogs. If a dog swims through a blue green algal bloom, when there is cyanobacteria present, it will die. It'll foam at the mouth. It'll keel over and die within about five to seven minutes. So we saw a couple of those at the university um, in one summer. And that's, we started looking at what the problem is. And, and the problem is the, the agricultural programs. And so I'm not sitting here saying that, you know, I'm not organically certified. It doesn't say organic on the bottle. Cause that's not what's important to me. I'm not trying to steal your money and virtue signal to anybody, right? I'm trying to cover my tracks. Well, I'm not, I'm not trying to cover my tracks. I don't want tracks, leave no trace. You know what I'm saying? And, and my farmers, I don't want them leaving a trace. I don't want them the reason why our, our lakes are green. And if we can get all of these, these, distillers and brewers and, and producers, you know, using sustainably grown grains and, and sustainability needs to advance too. I mean, like, come on, God, like, like, can we get on that? Why are we spending all this money making Monsanto's programs more efficient? Let's make sustainable farming more efficient. And that's not organic farming. You know, organic farming is not going to feed the world, but we can do this without ruining the world. That is the only reason we're here. And that's really what we want to do, you know, and that, 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 I mean, that, and you see that in limo too, with our barrel sourcing, you know, you see that with how we pitch yeast, you see that with a bunch of different things is you can reuse things. So why wouldn't we, you know? Um, but that's a, you know, so organic Wisconsin grains, Danko rye. Um, I love malted white winter wheat for, for clear distillates. I use a lot of that. Um, 
but yeah, we just, you know, if you, if you're growing it and it's good, it's organic, bring it on by, we'll, we'll get it tested. And if you meet our, our COA needs, then we'll get you in our growing program and you can start using our soil amendment. So we take our, our stillage is re-fermented by uh, our agrarian into a, an organic soil amendment that can hold nitrogen in the ground at a rate much, 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 much. It, it holds it in the ground. You know what I'm saying? We don't apply it. It holds in the right. ground, it holds it out of the air and holds it in the ground so effectively that our farmers apply it three times in a year and they don't have to apply it again for two more years. And so it's a very effective soil amendment for organic farmers, um, especially for Danko rye. So um, the other thing I really like is I like blue corn, Hopi blue corn, uh, pretty much any blue corn, but Hopi blue corn, especially. Um, the colored corns, they definitely have different notes to them all of them are sweet but some come out nutty some come out toasty and i really like those too and so we we do a good amount of those organic as well um gin itself it, you know i'd love to sit here and tell you that i'm making organic grain gns myself but that left our business model a long time ago when we when we realized that we needed more stills and uh so we we source that out of mgp um with with a lot of our other source goods um and it's quite a bit we do a lot of gin we actually do a pretty interesting thing for our gin. We blend. And so we take several different types of GNS, all of them corn, but different grades, different contra levels. And we'll blend those together to give us our good base profile that we're looking for. Um, and so those are our, our most of our inputs that we're using. Um, and also a good amount of beer. So we did a, we did a lot of uh, keg beer during COVID. And I'm always willing to take more keg beer anytime anyone runs, you know, runs out. Um, but, uh, we did quite a few distillations on Coors Light and Summer Shandy. Um, and the Summer Shandy is some wild stuff that lemon doesn't leave. I mean, it's still in, I got some in barrels. I got some as white moonshine too. Um, I put a lot of stuff in my stills, man. A lot of stuff. That's fun. It sounds like, you know, every day is going to give you a little something new. It's going to be a little, a little different. And I mean, going to, like I said, there's, there's so many things, like so many tangents I can go on here and I, Thinking, trying to think which one I want to go to first. Um, so I want to make sure to go back to the grain before I forget. So with the, you're right, that most most distillers, most corn products in, you know, writ large are going to be using this yellow dent number two, the kind of stuff we're all familiar with, you know, find it in any grocery store, looks pretty much the same. Um, but there's, in that uniformity, you lose all that flavor. And like, I've, been very open on saying this about you know in previous episodes so like i find that bourbon and corn distillate in general is just really flavorless below a certain proof below a certain age uh it's thin it needs a lot of help uh and you know if you get lucky you might get lucky but um then you look at something like rye which is really you know i think we're in the rye renaissance now i think oh, yeah. we officially call it that um, I mean, you, you guys using the Danko rye, uh, a couple of places using the Rosen rye, both in Pennsylvania and in uh, Illinois. And uh, something else that I was thinking of too is that your family goes back to Norway and going to Scandinavia writ large. Uh, I'm curious if uh, you've tried any whiskeys from uh, Stowning in Denmark. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I had them on. Uh, this is a few dozen episodes ago now, but I've still been trying their stuff because it's it's so damn good. And I know it's most of it you'll never see in the US, but I still try to get a sample because it's so 
great. Uh, but they're using these different grains. They're using the local types of rye or different types of rye. And I wanted to kind of bring that back because uh, while the two products that I tried from Dancing Goat so far are the malted bourbon, which I definitely want to get into because I haven't, pretty sure I haven't had a malted bourbon before, but also the limousine rye. And um, it sounds like that, and between that also, it sounds like I'm rambling now, but it, it all does make sense somehow is that uh, you're very open about the fact you distill some, you source some, and then you blend it together to make the product that you want. And of course, distilling, uh, sourcing rather from MGP, the first thing people think of, not even NGS or GNS, it's probably the rye. 95.5, yeah. The 95.5 rye. Um, so it, so all of that is to say that um, why don't we, uh, we'll, we'll make sure to hit the multi-bourbon before we sign off. Cool. Why don't, we, uh, why don't we dive into the rye? Cool. I'd love to dive into the rye. Um, and then uh, lo- I'd love to talk corn again with you too, if we can go back to corn later. Um, so the rye, rye from MGP, I don't know. There's definitely people who have drank more rye from, M- than, from MGP than me, for sure. There are. But I personally, I own thousands of barrels of it. And I have looked at thousands, dozens of thousands of samples of it in the last, I wouldn't say dozens of thousands of samples. I would say probably, I probably looked at 1500 rye samples from MGP that I don't own in the last eight years. Um, Everything from new stuff that they've tried to the the 95 runs. I'll I'll usually get a a tanker sample from every lot. And uh, there's, there's all so de- I've spent my entire adult life trying to deconstruct the 95.5 from MGP. And I've, I'm at this is where I'm at on it. I'm never ever going to be able to match it. And I know that. Um, and the reason I know that is because I've gotten in my distillates. Um, not so they use proprietary yeast from Seagram's. Uh, and obviously, Dr. Pat could come up with something for us to match that kind of. But you know, the other big thing is their latitude is a great place to age dry. Um, but when you start to look at the lithographs from their, dis- from their actual distillates, like when you start running them through lab machines and seeing where are peaks and valleys, there's, it's very apparent from their congener profiles or their, their carboxylic acid profiles, um, it's not one type of rye. They're doing a blend. And I don't know how much they are blending. I don't know if it's three. I don't know if it's five. Um, and even though I have family relationships inside that distillery, I... I sell a lot of their booze outside of my own distillery. I, I bring new clients to them, um, a lot of new fill sales. I, uh, I, I can't crack it. I can't crack that 95.5 from them. It's so good. And so when you look at where they're getting their grain from, every time, every time that there's issues in growing seasons in uh, Europe, there's, there's dings on their stock price, which means that they're for sure sourcing their rye from there. The other thing that you look at is their spice level is high enough where it's 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 high in its balance. It has a good amount of clove and a little bit of nutmeggy allspiciness, whereas instead of just all clove black pepper. And so that that suggests to me brissettos being used for sure. Um, you could start to lean towards as well as KWS Serafino, which is a very great rye. I mean, that's a great rye with a great flavor profile. 
Um, and then you start looking at, you know, is there Spooner in there? Well, it doesn't look like there's Spooner in there, but it's definitely a blend. And, and that doesn't surprise me because the amount of rides they make, they're going to want it to be consistent, right? Um, and they're going to look for a very specific and unique spice profile. Um, so I source a lot of MGP rye and I put it in barrels. But the, the thing that I just can't get across enough in my marketing is I have the most unique rye whiskey in the world because I'm the only person putting MGP rye in used barrels. Um, full stop. I'm the only person doing it. And the reason I know I'm the only person doing it is they came to me three years ago and they offered me to empty their entire lots of used barrels to me and my daddy, because we're the only people that will take them. And so we ended up with thousands of barrels of bourbon mash uh, in used cooperage, as well as rye in used cooperage. And these are all things that, you know, when you hear Seagram's, you should think Canadian. Canadian rise, even if they're straight rise, they can blend used in new cooperage, even though I can't, I can't call mine. A, mine has to be called whiskey from a rye mash, you know, which is actually to my benefit when it comes to finishing. I can get into that later for sure. Um, from a compliance standpoint, but they, uh, you know, Canadian rise, they blend, uh, new and used cooperage, um, to kind of knock down that tannin and, and knock down when you add tannin to rye, specifically those Eastern rise, you get a ton of guayacol, black pepper, and so what we really like is that sweetness, sweetness without black pepper. And so we can get a little pepper tickle activation on limo using our used cooperage and using younger bourbon barrels, which is what we're always going for. We're going for your young bourbon barrels. We're looking for a product. We're looking for barrels that took out that green tannin. So we're looking for like eight, six months to 18 or two year old, 18 month or two year old bourbon um, barrels for our limo ride. And so what we end up getting is we get nice full extraction. We get great tannic influence, um, but the, the solvent notes uh, and then the conversion of, of certain esters doesn't happen specifically to guayacol. And so the, the young fruity notes of rye that some people notice and like in some of their younger craft that they like to support, we're able to maintain a little bit of that into our six-year age statement because we don't have that tannin competing over the top. And so I really love that because it's, it's a very, it's a, it's a nice, it's subtle, it's full. Um, it doesn't really have a solvent on the backside. Um, I, I love, I mean, and that comes from our, my family's heritage that comes from up in Wisconsin. You know, we, 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 you're moonshine, you're reusing barrels. That's what you're doing. You're not, yeah, you're not course. going to, I, you're not making them yourself. You're not going to ISC and buying new ones. When you, when you, you know, you lucky enough to get a barrel, you put whatever you want in there. You know, and if you're actually moonshine, you want to call it bourbon, you throw a stave in there, you know, and you, you're honest with people, you tell them what it is. Well, it depends on what kind of moonshine you are, but, and that's where we really got that idea from is when we heard that they had a bunch of these Canadian style rides that used to be blenders for Seagram's, my ears perked up. because so I was like, okay, now let's only, I was like, my uncle is one of the sales guys for MGP. And so we were going through everything with him. He had all these straight rides that he had been set aside for for like two years. And I rejected all of them. And then he pulls out, he's like, well, I have this stuff that no one wants. And he's pulling out like four five and six year old 51 and 95 rye and use cooperage. And I'm like, banger, 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 banger. Take the whole lot, take the whole lot, take the whole lot, take the whole lot. I felt like Aaron from Snokewagon in there when he went in there guns blazing, like, give me everything 21% on the sixth floor. You know, I was in there, I was like, give me every lot of the used coop in the early times barrels. But um, it's what we were looking for. And it, it kind of like limo itself is a product it, we call it limo because it, it goes through a, a, a limousine solera for a finishing, but that's just our primary finishing. We do a proofing finishing or a secondary finishing in another used barrel. And so I like to call it, it's a double finish. It's a double finish 
you know, whiskey from a rye mash. Um, but uh, it's been interesting trying to match that with our own because that's where I really figured out when I was looking at my lithographs versus theirs, we did not have nearly as many peaks and valleys. And that wasn't a function of yeast. And that was not a function of barrels. That was a, that was a function of mash bill. And so once we started looking at that, we, we put more, more rye in the ground. And so I'm hoping this year, fingers crossed, my friends, um, that we pulled enough off of Washington Island. But uh, we have KWS Serafino growing up on Washington Island. And then we have Brissetto that went in the ground here after we took our corn out. And so we're going to do a blend of our Danko, Brissetto, and that KWS Serafino. And the way that those kind of are going to come about is the, the Danko has really good clove notes. I mean, so good that you, they, they resonate to the building when we're cooking it. Uh, the KWS Serafino will bring a little bit of pepper and it'll bring some more of those medicinal qualities. Uh, it also has a really good spice. And then the, uh, the Brissetto is a very, it's a very common rye used in distilling. Uh, it gets, you know, it'll yield, uh, it'll be a good yielder and it'll support some of those other notes, but it's not really the main driver in the blend for flavor. Um, All this, it, it's, it's kind of mind blowing because I was, as I was tasting the limousine rye, I was thinking to myself, you know, I, I at that point when I was tasting, I wasn't sure if it was, uh, you know, sourced in-house distilled, if, you know, what the exact mashables were and all that. But uh, I was thinking that for something that was at least partially finished, you know, it was first finished in the limousine rye casks, sorry, the limousine just casks uh, itself. Um, you think of that oak, it, it's, it's usually very tannic, uh, sorry, at least, you know, in the first use, it's going to be really tannic. It's going to be very peppery in a second use, maybe less so, but it's still going to have those kinds of characteristics as opposed to the kind of coconutty, apple-y kind of thing of the American oak. Uh, and, but I thought even for all of that, it was like, they finished this in a limousine cask, in a limousine Solaris system, I should say, it's still very controlled with the black pepper. And personally, I, I love black pepper in my, in my rise. I like those really spicy kind of rise. Um, but it had plenty of creaminess from the oak too, and kind of a black licorice note in the back that's sweet enough that it's, you know, like black, um, like Australian style black licorice. Yes. Or black yeah. licorice taffy. I know, I know the exact uh, note you're talking about. I just had it on a not 12 year old 95 that I was smelling exactly. the other day. Yeah. So like that kind of black licorice without turning it into like chewing on a star anise thing. Yes. You know? And that's, um, that's the challenger, right? Is it's hard to balance all those. You know, you get a lot of those, you, have you ever seen out of MGP? I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I, I really can't. No, no, go ahead. Have you ever seen out of MGP the 95.5? It usually happens about five or six years old. Um, uh, the mint note. Have you ever seen yes. the, and especially like if you get it in yeah. a single barrel where it's just like, that's gum. That's gum. And I'm not, not anytime like I'm saying that's gum because like it's gross. I always think like my mom too and on regular government. <laughs> um, but uh, hey, I mean, I love notes like that whiskey. You know what I mean? But they're, they're just to get that out of a rye is just so cool. You know what I mean? It's, yeah, it's a sweet mint note that it doesn't hit on the front at all. You got to get the sip through and then it hits uh, kind of on the back palate just as you're swallowing the sip. Yep. Um, yeah, I agree. It's right around, you said like a six, seven year kind of thing. Yeah. And personally, like seven, six, seven year eight year MGP 95.5 is like my everyday rye. I could dream it every day, whatever brand it is. Like if they're just putting it in the barrel, it's fine. I mean, most of my stuff happens to be from Barrelcraft Spirits because they, I, you know, I just had a bunch of single barrels from them, but it's fascinating to see the evolution of it because you take that at seven years, let's say, 
I just got a bottle of uh, another NDP, uh, Bell uh, Hughes Bell Bedford. Okay, yeah, for sure. So, so same same base product. It's ninety five five rye, one fourteen proof, nine and five nine years five months old, and tastes nothing like it. Tastes nothing like the the you know the, what I would consider kind of the core ninety five five seven year old rye. It was much less sweet, super savory, a little bit of dill, but not very much, especially considering it's 95.5. You expect that dill note to be pretty strong yeah, be, on the front. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it was, it was fascinating to me, but then again, I also tasted a, a friend who had another bar, another bottle, I should say from a barrel that was two barrels over. And that one was disgusting, but yeah. Do you <laughs> just, know where just, in the rig it was? Um, I so MGP, those, those, I kind of, you, so you had, you had, uh, you had some from MGP on your, you had some of MGP yeah. on a couple of years ago. Yeah, um, uh, David, David Whitmer. They're a yeah, nice blender. Yep. Yeah. And so I work with Sam who works for Dave and Sam's one of my favorite people. Cause he's, he's, he's a great teacher. I mean, he's been teaching me about structure and layering in a really cool way. Um, kind of exactly how he was talking about how they work with their clients. Um, and it's, it's on there from them. It's an investment. Like they want to work with their clients and build great blending houses because they'll move more source product. And that makes sure. total sense. But one of the things that really jumped out at me specifically, and I can quote this to you, and I would listen to this, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Um, I can quote this to you in real time uh, or not in real. I can quote this to you now with only listening to once is he had mentioned that um, on certain floors, you know, you're going to have different uh, flavors and mm-hmm. like, you know, if you're on an exterior wall, I think that's what he said. He's like, he was talking about how there's different houses with different amount of windows. And like, you might have something on next to your wall that was just stellar. You know what I mean? And like, that's the, that's the crazy thing about this is like, if you're center of the deck, you're going to have high humidity. You're going to be insulated from temperatures. It's going to be very consistent. You know, that's going to be consistent extraction because you're not going to change in polarity too much. Whereas like, if you're like, if you're higher in those ricks where there's going to be a little more heat built, like you're not in those subterranean floors, but the higher ones and you're near next to your wall, that's where you'll start to see a little bit of proof building and, and a little bit of variance out of those that you don't see, you know, those, those brick warehouses are such good insulators. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, Whereas yeah. like, if you go to like Lux row, you know, and you start going Rick to Rick, you start seeing like, Holy smoke. Like the cher- they, like these are all cherry. These ones are all this. These ones are all this. And they're not playing around with the profile toast at all. Like they don't put things like P 47s and P 25s. You know what, P- you know what those are? No, I don't. So a lot of like, like, I don't mean to be like giving people secrets away, but like Chattanooga whiskey company, right? So Chattanooga whiskey company, very successful with their own distillates young. The reason I know this is because I have hundreds of their barrels that I've bought from KBB, Kentucky bourbon barrel uh, used. And so Kentucky bourbon barrel, your barrel broker, you talk to Calvin too. I listened to that one as well. I see. I'm up to date on you. You got some pretty sweet. Yes. I, I try to, you know, hit every aspect. You gotta, you gotta have the holistic treatment. Yeah. You do. You absolutely do. Um, but they, they're a barrel broker. And so they buy uh, used barrels and they'll resell them. And um, they're a shout out to Noah. Love you. Just for not Noah's first name is actually Sterling. And I was kind of upset that he's going by Noah when he could be going by Sterling, you know, like Sterling Archer. And so I got a bone to pick with you, Noah. Um, but we, uh, we picked up a crap ton from them. And one of the things that you see is uh, they're using ISCs and they're using a lot of like P25s and P40s. I think it's P25s and P37s. But that is from IS. So ISC 
if you're looking to bring out a young rye, and that's inter, uh, Independent Stave Company, is the it's a mm-hmm. cooperage, uh, the biggest, pretty much the biggest one um, in the states. And so what they'll do is the they found that a one char and a two char is better for products that you want to age, bring to market young, because it doesn't you, your carbon layer is closer to the surface, which moves your red line mm-hmm. closer to the surface, and then there's more wood that's toasted underneath that carbon filter. And so you're getting a more tannic extraction at a higher rate. So what they'll do is they'll toast that, and they call it profile 20, I think it's profile 25 and profile 37. There's a sweet, there's a smoky, and there's a savory. And what you can do as a young distiller is, you, and I do this, like I, I, I do this. And so I'm not talking bad on Chattanooga. I'm just giving people a, a good reference of something that they find good, that they probably don't know how it happened. But they have a pretty good rye that they make there, as well as bourbon. And um they they use these these barrels with different chars and toast levels because it it brings out more of that eugenol and that clove in the younger ryes and the ryes used to get mature faster right um and so like that's like that's one thing that like you know luxor doesn't do that at all like they don't they're not using any they're using mostly four chars uh from what i've seen almost all four char iscs and uh and they get a really good variance rick to rick you know whereas like an mgp those variances aren't as common you know what i mean you'll get them floor to floor but not rick to rick on the same floors right and usually like from what david said like building to building because it's it was so haphazardly built over the years that like every building as you said every building is different it could be brick could be you know 20 windows versus 10 it could have no windows some of them i think have no windows it's um it's you think of it as this monolithic entity that's pumping out so much whiskey that's got to be all consistent but there's so much variation just on the campus itself let alone in what comes out uh, so yeah i mean it it amazes me that the that the rye profiles can be so different and i never really thought about like what rye goes into mgp well it's and, not i guarantee you it's not one i i no, and it, I, I, right, it has to be a blend to, to be consistent to be like blend. that it has to be a blend to had to to be consistent flavor wiles and keep yields up year round it has to be a blend it has to be absolutely and you also bring up a good point about like you know, rye, I said, you know, seven year rye is about my, my sweet spot, but at the same time, uh, rye can just, it can mature so much faster than a bourbon yes. can for me. Like I can count on one hand, the number of bourbons under four years old that I've genuinely liked. And I know there's plenty of people who like it, who, who have had bourbon for like 10, 15 gallon casks and all this. And that's fine. If you, you know, you like what you like, I, if you like it, drink it no problem uh but for me like the bourbon needs it needs longer to go back to that corn being that thin kind of flavorless distillate unless it's a heritage brand or or you know heritage uh grain rather you know local grain but a rye on the other hand like i was at a bar as of this taping i was at a bar um about a week ago and it's towards the end of the night i'm tried like 15 different things over here and uh this guy that i just met and the bartender who I know, they bring out this bottle of uh, dad's hat rye. And I was like, I don't want to know any of the specs. Like, just, I just want to know it's a rye. I know they're doing the Monongahela style. So I know that about them, but otherwise they're like, don't tell me anything. Just let me try it first. I try it. And I'm like, this is fantastic. Like, and I'm trying to guess the specs. Like I got the proof pretty much right on the, if there's one thing I can guess blind is proof that one I'm usually right on with. Uh, but I was like, I guess it was around four to five years old or so, maybe a little bit young, you know, and they show me the bottle. It's nine months old. What? 
nine months old and i'm and yes it's smaller casks it was a uh uh i think it was isc um not kelvin but it, it was definitely like you know 15 gallon at most maybe 10 but it was like a nine year nine month ride to me it's mind-blowing like yeah, i've got my months. limits where it comes to young whiskeys and young grains like at a certain point i'm just like that's too grainy for me but this tasted like a mature like easily simple ride i was like i want a bottle of this right now and it's nine months old it's not gonna be that much that expensive of a bottle um or anything like that but it blows my mind that that's yeah possible. That, that's awesome that I, I really so i love that whole brand i love that that guy he marches around adi and he 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 helps everybody. He's been in the business for a while. They're, and I think they're out of Pennsylvania, right? I think yeah, they're yeah. yeah, they're out of Pennsylvania, which is a rye making territory. They're making great booze out there. Um, the, you know, the thing that really kind of that stood out to me from what you said, um, going back to me wanting to talk about corn for a second and going yeah. off what you said about young, about rye being a little more mature, younger, you know, is uh the thing with corn is corn as a base note is a neutral sweet, right? And so you really need to build off there. And, and, that, and it's two bourbons advantage that are using new cooperage because it'll impart so much more tannin and acid, right? But the big thing about bourbon and the thing that you're seeing more and more as more people listen to that damn heist. No, I'm kidding. So Pat, <laughs> did he talk to you about sweet mash? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So he's a big proponent of sweet mash. I'm a big proponent of kettle souring my sweet mash. <laughs> and um, <laughs> he makes it, it, and he's right. At the end of the day, your yeast are healthier and they perform better, you know, in the right parameters, a hundred percent. But sometimes stress is what's needed to get the desired outcome of flavor. And sometimes you need to sacrifice those little soldiers, you know, autolysis, right? And so when you're looking at bourbon, traditionally sour mash, Besides efficiency, um, and I mean efficiency and liquefaction, there's there's a there's an efficiency reason to do it, a mechanical reason to do it. But then the big thing is is bacteria provides nuance in bourbon, and, and traditionally that's that's where always lactobacillus specifically is it, it can provide nuance in bourbon where where it usually doesn't have any. And the the problem with bourbon usually is you let it sit too long and it gets too gluey because it doesn't have enough to hold up to all that tannin and to be supported by it, um, or it it's just kind of plain kind of blah, right. you know what I mean? Um, even especially too. So you see two things, people doing a lot of sweet mash now and people doing a lot of four grain and four grain is great because it, it kind of activates the palate. But once you get to eight, 10, 12 years old, that really well-rounded flavor profile, nothing really pops. It's just all tannin. Um, rye on the other side is a lot greasier. It has a lot more oils in it. It has a lot more of those fun congeners in it. And it takes well to that tannin young you know it doesn't need as much tannin either you know like a 20 year old rye. if you have any of those willet family 21s or 20s those are those are those can be hard to take down you know what i mean those can be hard to work through one because they get so hot proof wise but two i mean they're they're black they're inky black you know and and little water always helps open those up a little bit but it's hard to water down something that costs that much money you know um yeah, <laughs> but when we're looking at like corn specifically so like the spaniard which i brought up earlier Corn whiskey is something I love dearly and, and, and because of the used barrel. And I'm not saying that corn whiskey is something that like you don't go like I'm not saying go buy stock in mellow corn. You know what I'm saying? Well, you could because there's the, the Reddit, the and mellow they're, corn. They're not Reddit, doing bad. Corn. No, they're not doing bad at all. Not bad at all. But um, the thing about corn whiskey that I love is it's, it's primed to be finished. It's primed to be finished. And so when you look mm -hmm. at the Spaniard specifically, 
I had a, a very unique barrel. I had a 300 liter charred and toasted brand new um, Spanish oak barrel. And I had an opportunity. I could make bourbon. I could put it in there. Even though it's a 300 liter, it's still legally be bourbon. Or I could finish some whiskey in it that needed to be finished. And so I bit the bullet and I did what most people wouldn't do. Most people would have made a bourbon first and gotten a lot of money for it to pay for the barrel. I took three corn whiskeys and made a blend. And these are three corn whiskeys that were about, they came out to about 125 proof and they were blended. They were on some of those outside tiers of the Rick house and those, some of those exterior walls and MQP. Um, and they're all about eight or nine years old. And they're all things that individually they were lacking. One didn't have good body. One had a short finish and one had no bouquet. Put them all together. It gave it a good finish. Well, it gave it a, 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 a long finish that was, that left the, it finished long, but didn't have a lot going on. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What was there lingered. It was a really good creamy finish and it lingered, but it was just creamy. It didn't transition. It didn't give any other notes. Um, it had a good, decent bouquet, but it needed more. Um, and then the body of it was decent, but it needed more. And so what I did is I used a barrel finishing to correct that. I matched a blend with the barrel that I thought would do well. And it did really well. Spanish oak is a tannin that is super active. And um, there's a really cool story on how I ended up with these, but um, it's, it's also a really awful story on why I'll never get more of them. And that's because ISC made them for Jim Beam and Jim Beam tried to finish their bourbon in it. And ISC will do anything for a big company. They won't do for a small one. Even one like me, I'll, like, I'll buy, I'll source 17 tankers in the next three years and I'll make, hope, fingers crossed, I'll make somewhere close to seven to 10,000 barrels myself here. Uh, and a lot of that will be sold on the source market. So if you need new fill, get at me. Um, but, you know, we're looking to really process some fluid here. And even I can't get them to do what I want them to do, which is just sell me five trucks of barrels this year. Uh, but Calvin's helping me out. So I'm so glad you had them on. Um, and that's how you form new relationships, right? But, uh, but the, this barrel specifically, I, and I work with their flavor lab a lot evoke so uh they do a lot of staving so like and that's uh, we should come back to staving um the uh the thing with evoke the thing with evoke is they they told me like no it's bad it's the tannin's bad it's gonna it's too bitter it's too sour like why would you want that and it's like well the reason i want that is because i have like two thousand barrels of eight-year-old corn whiskey from mgp that needs a little something i don't have you know three-year-old bourbon i'm trying to blend off into legion you know what I'm saying? Like when you have, when you're in Kentucky and you go through a, 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 I call it a, a fluctuated cycle, right? So you go down to about 40 degrees and then you come up to, you know, 60, 70, 80, 90, sometimes hundred degrees, you know, but you never really go too far below 40. You're always extracting tannin. As long as you're above 40 degrees, you're extracting tannin from the barrel. And so in Kentucky, you use a four char, you can make some pretty balanced and palatable whiskey at three years old to sell as a commodity, right? But it has a lot of tannin in it. And if you just try to put more tannin on top of it, uh-uh. no, you didn't, you didn't use, you know, you didn't use your palate. You didn't say, let me make this and this. You said, Hey, what can we throw in here for, for a higher rank? And um, just, sorry, just to jump in with that too. Like if you're making a three-year-old whiskey that, or a three-year-old bourbon, even that is going to be a commodity product, it's going to be a volume thing. Um, you know, you're, not going to be waiting for that oak that's been you know air drying for four years or whatever you're going to take whatever the minimum is maybe 18 months maybe 24 if they're really pushing it but you're not going to be taking these things that have that are going to draw those tenants out so you're already starting with the oak that's going to be super tannic as well yeah exactly exactly yeah and so you you've been over product already 
and then you tried to over extract it with something you knew was going to over extract mm-hmm. like that's you know, of course it wasn't gonna be successful you know but then i sit there and i get so i just sent off two bottles to uh adi um uh, spirits judging and i'm sending two to ascot and i have all the confidence in the world that we're going to get uh at least golds but i mean i'm not going to sit here and tell you what i actually think we're going to get because i think we're going to take what well, it sounds like i am going to tell you we take a best in category from bold um i just believe it i really believe we'll take best in corn whiskey i really it's it's a stellar product it we took something that was pale straw lacking in bouquet nose finish everything hit it with spanish oak for about nine months it came out um I don't, I'm not going to go grab one because it's the other side of the distillery. I don't want to leave you blank for a while, but I wish I had one right here, but the color difference in it is just amazing. I mean, it's, it's like, it's black and it's earthy and there's leather and tobacco and loam. There's a little bit of moss popping out. It's crazy. It's like, it's like an MGP rye. It's crazy. And it's sweet as they all get out because it's at the end of the day, it's still corn whiskey. And it's, uh, and I've done something else too. This is one of Bill's favorites. So corn whiskey, right? Same type of thing. I had a lot that then this and these were actually the same exact plot and i did this for almonds uh what ended up at almonds i did it for myself but it ended up at almonds but we moonshined some kirschwasser and i mean literally like we made kirschwasser in a field the field across the highway right there um i was with my buddy steve steve's a redneck so am i um so but we made this stuff called kirschwasser it's a cherry brandy and uh it's it's, uh, bavarian and are you familiar with kirschwasser at all yeah yeah i love it not usually straight honestly but i do love yeah well, it. so you get that bitter that you get that almond that cherry and you get that bitterness from it and that bitterness yeah. is from the pits you distill it on the pits and so you know i am a i'm a i'm a sweets guy i'm not really a pits guy and so we left the pits out we fermented sweet and back sweetened it um and then when we back sweetened it we repitched it and so we let it we tried to ferment that out didn't work and so then i ended up filtering out all of the sugar on the backside and then all the yeast that I repitched. And so I was left with a pretty clear fluid, put that in a barrel for six months, took it out. Absolutely delicious. Homeboy bottled it up. He gave it away in Mason jars for his, and this was all, you know, I hate to be like on like an actual distilling form being like, yeah, I'm moonshine it. Go do that. You know, this was on his property with his grains and his stuff. And I was just there watching, you know, showing him the ropes. You know what I mean? Maybe, maybe I found him a used barrel. Um, and maybe he returned it to me, but that barrel was no longer in inventory. So I never filled it. And I actually, I just had it sit in the corner and there's a young man who doesn't work here anymore. And, um, uh, I wish him the best, uh, hope he finds his way back to us one day, uh, as a mature young man. And, uh, but he, he made a mistake and he hit a barrel with a forklift. And I, I'm pretty sure what happens, he hit a barrel with a forklift, he knocked a stave out and you can't, Oof. you know, you can't fix that. And it was a corn whiskey barrel. And so what he, I'm, what, what I've constructed on the backside is he passed the cookie. So he just dumped it out and put it straight in, but then he, he fudged the paperwork so that no one would know. And so mm-hmm. I opened this barrel about a year later and it's literally, it's all cherry and almonds. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And it kept a lot of sweetness from the corn whiskey and it had a really nice long finish on it. And so, uh, took it, proofed it down in the barrel over the course of, you know, I think it was like 20 days and barely even dropped it, dropped it like three points in 20 days, but it gave it a lot of body, let that hang a little longer. And it's just, you know, corn whiskey, especially one that's just a little bland. You just need to find the right finish for it. And that's something I love. And like with MGP kind of buttoning up their, 
they're they're changing the way that they're operating for sourcing in a big way that's drastically going to impact our industry like 100%. Um, corn whiskey, thank God, is something we can still buy because they're not going to be doing a lot more custom runs. Um, but that's that's really what I love, man. Is, is like finish, like you know, taking a whiskey, and then you see it with the limousine rye too. Is we're we're aging and use cooperage to control the tannic extraction over five years, so we can put the exact one we want on in with our double barrel finish in nine months. You know, right. So uh, when you're getting it from MGP, is it's strictly the ninety nine one corn whiskey recipe? No, 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 no. I have hundred percent corn. I'm the only person in the world that's got it. Ah. Okay. It's an old Seagram's. It's an old Seagram's uh, blender. I don't know what they used it for. And it's a, it's a hundred percent corn whiskey with one of their Seagram's yeasts. And so I'm pretty sure I'm the only person that has it and they don't want to make any more for me. They're trying to kick me over the 99 one. Um, the uh, it's, it's, it's alone in a used in used cooperage. It's a little thin. For sure. Uh, it doesn't get the body. It doesn't get the, it has a lot of sweetness, but it doesn't get the characters, the other things that we want out of it. Right. It doesn't really get robust. Um, but it's prime to finish. It's real prime for finishing. Um, and you, creamy, and that would have had to been, uh, that would have had to been like uh, pitched enzymes as opposed to, cause there would have been no enzymatic activity. Right. Yeah, it would be uh, definitely would be, well, it depends. So you could pitch ends. So they're definitely pitching enzymes on probably everything I'd imagine just from a safety perspective, you know, to make sure that, that Fair, yeah. are complete. Uh, I pitch enzyme on everything. Um, because I do a lot of like, I mean, I make a crap ton of hundred percent rye unmalted rye and I love it. It's delicious. You know, I love, I mean, pitching with enzyme, it just allows for complete conversion, um, mm -hmm. at, at our level. Um, the, uh, the, the thing with the, uh, with that hundred, I hope, man, I hope they let me keep getting it. Uh, I think there's actually, there's one other person who buys it from him and my uncle won't tell me who it is. And if my uncle won't tell me who it is, you better believe it's somebody, you know what I mean? Cause yeah, usually yeah. he'll tell me, like, I wouldn't like when he tells me stuff, like I wouldn't sit here and tell you like, Oh yeah, he told me it's these people. You know, if I would tell you like, Oh, I know who it is. I can't say it, but he won't even tell me who it is, you know? And he's only got one boss. And so it's not like, he's like, you know, so it's someone big. It's someone big that probably doesn't want everyone knowing they're buying it. So they're probably supplementing the mash bill, you know? Um, but I, it looks like I will be able to keep getting that hundred percent, which is important to me. I mean, that's awesome. Cause I, I think, of, but to go back to your point about the, the corn whiskey being ripe for finishing, like I completely agree with you. Like, I mean, I've got a bottle of mellow corn just to throw you know, there. I mean, it, it's just classic. It's, it's a great simple bottle for like 15 bucks and you're not gonna beat it. But um, I was, in an episode that hasn't aired yet, I think coming out, not this week, but on next week. Uh, so it'll be out by the time this one comes out. Uh, I was talking to Bernie Lubbers and, you know, he's been on every podcast, every show, everything. So I was like, I got to come up with some new questions, new products that talk to this guy about. And I was thinking like, I'll do the, you know, the Parker's Heritage, the Heaven Hill Select stocks, the, the ones that nobody really, you know, you have to be a real big fan to know about or even yeah. try to find. And one of them was this Heaven Hill Select Stock, 17-year-old corn whiskey that was finished for two and a half years in cognac barrels. Oh, that's what I'm talking about. And I tried it randomly at a, a bar with a really good selection here in New York City. Um, and it was it was weird too, because it was it was a uh, like their mellow corn recipe, the mash bill, 
it was on floor six of the of the brick house. I think it was a seven floor brick house, if I remember correctly. And but it was aged on the floor. Like it wasn't up in a rick. And I asked him why that would have been. And he's like, it's probably it's one of two things. He didn't know offhand because it was a one barrel thing, but like either they didn't have room when they made it and they just ran out of room in the ricks, or because it was a corn whiskey and they were using a used barrel, could have been a 60 gallon barrel or you know, 66 or whatever, and it's a little too big for the ricks, so they had to put it on the floor instead. But it was fascinating because like you think of a two and a half year finish is a hell of a finish that is that's not even that's, that's hardly a finish that's aging you know that's aging that, that's <laughs> yeah, maturation that's at that point and you know at the same time it, it's a weird um dissonance because like the a bourbon that's finished for two and a half years a lot of time for me like it, there aren't a lot of them out there right now but there are a couple and quite frankly it just feels like the bourbon is lost like you yeah. just taste the finish and as good as the finish might be, like you want to taste what's underneath too. Like there should be a balance between the two. And then you have this corn whiskey that, yeah, it's 17 years old, but it's corn whiskey. So even at 17, it's in a used barrel. It's not going to have a ton, ton of flavor from that. It's going to, you know, equalize a certain point. And yet put that in two and a half year cognac finish and it came out beautifully. You didn't lose any of the corn. It enhanced it. It was great. Um, I think that bottle is now finished. Otherwise I would have you like get on the next flight over here and try it. Um, Cause there was only like, you know, this much left when I was there a few weeks ago, but it fascinated me. Like, do you find that with the, with the corn whiskey, like ha, ha, besides the, the Spaniard, which now I like super excited to hopefully try at some point. Uh, have you found that even though it might not get as much flavor up front, like it might be a little thinner up front or, or whatever we talked about with the corn, that it can handle those finishes a little bit better at the same time, whether it's barrel or liquid. So I don't do a, so I don't do a lot of liquid finishes. Um, like I don't do any. Um, I do do the way that I do port finishes. A lot of people assume are a wet finish or what like they would call a wet finish. Um, like mm-hmm. they, like actually like a port edition of liquid. Um, mm-hmm. so we age our port. We purchase port by the tote. And then we age it for two to four years in a barrel and then use it to finish with. And it is the, it is, I'll be very frank with you. You would be very disappointed with it because there's no, there's no whiskey note left. We call them Kool-Aid finishes or Kool-Aid rise. And they, they're great for blending because they give a snarly purple hue to it. And I'm talking, I drip it out, you know, the, this, but there's so much poured in there. Um, the thing with you, the, can, you can empty a barrel and it's still going to be five gallons in there if it's a regular in the wood. Yeah. There's still five gallons yeah. in the wood. You know in what I mean? Wood, yeah. And that's the point is like, I do that more to increase viscosity than to get the finish in there. You know, um, sure. when we, when we look at the corns, the things that we're really looking for is, is it's almost like, like a paint primer. We want a really clear undercoat paint primer. We want specifically cream off the top vanilla on the finish so creamy you know, you know like like there's cream and there's vanilla like vanilla will often be a little richer than just cream you know in like as a note in whiskey or even in ice cream if you think of like like a, like a like a i used to work in an ice cream factory that had like it was called maggie mousse and we had an utterly cream which was unflavored just white cream ice cream and then we also had a, a very vanilla which was an actual vanilla and you know without vanilla in there there's a lot less depth you know what i mean um, and so what we really look for with those cream whiskeys is if it has vanilla on the palate, 
we really want to use that for corn whiskey. Um, but if it's lacking that vanilla, it's more of a cream or it has cream on the bouquet and vanilla more depth on the finish. Um, that's something that's really ripe for finishing because that's a really good backdrop for it. And what I, what I found is that you connect back to the whiskey with the vanillin, with the cream. And so if we have something that lacks in vanillin on the, on the nose, but has it on the palate, it is okay, we're going to put this with a heavy finish, like something, either a heavy tannin or, you know, like a port finish, because it'll still pop out and scream at us. You know what I mean? It'll still be you know, that vanilla, that creaminess of the corn. Because you know, that's what a lot of people say when they when they taste bourbons with corn and they, they go, oh, cream corn, creamy corn, you know? And so that's mm -hmm. something that we that I use in finishing to kind of guide me to say, like, how do I pair this? Um, but the one thing that I really do is when we finish, it's it's exceptionally sensory driven. It's it's we pair things, right? And we'll pair them by olfactory, we'll pair them by smell. And so, like when we're sitting there, so my family, um, uh <laughs> we're all rednecks, um, big into maple syrup, um, large maple syrup producers for a long time. Um largest state property up north that has been sold um and we sold it we sold the recipe and the equipment to make our syrup but we we've retained the rights to purchase all of it and so when i'm in my office doing blending i'll leave the door open and um everyone around here in production has a hell of a sniffer on them like we're everyone we do a lot of sensory training with patrick who's who's our experiences manager and tasting room manager um and he does a lot of tastings with us and sensory trains with us um, and so everyone's pretty cued in on like what we're looking for, but when they're dumping to fill the Solera for limo, I'll leave my door open and I'll get hints. I'll, I'll just get whiffs of it. And I'll kind of know kind of like, okay, well this lot, yeah, they're probably in this lot. They're probably in this lot. What's that? And so we'll bear it. We'll dump them two at a time. And so if I get a, what's that I'll go out there and I'll smell the empty barrel. And if it's a, cause it's already, the liquid's already gone. It's blended in my Solera. I can't get it back but I don't need, I'm looking for the barrel and there's certain things that I want. I want high spice orange and I want spice first. I want clove to be predominant. And if there's an orange undertow and I mean like a strong orange undertow, you know, like a, like an orange extract undertow to it, which pops in our eyes because we're not using the new cooperage. So it doesn't get covered up, um, but it can't be the star. Sometimes we have orange at the star. That's, that's not what I'm looking for. But if I get that spice first with orange underneath that, it, it's going in a syrup barrel. It's just gone. And I'll just come out. Sometimes I don't even say anything. I just smack it and they already know. And usually by now, now that I've done enough times, they'll know when I'm coming and they'll say, we, they'll go, it's already, it's over there. We pulled it for you already. It's over there. <laughs> but the, what we do is we try to match the fluid to the finish we need. And so like, if I don't have something in inventory to finish it with that I, I, that I need, I'll get it. Or we don't do it. You know, we will, we'll never just take 25 barrels and dump them together and fill up 25 barrels. I got from, kentucky bourbon barrel or from france or you know because that to me there's no soul in that you know if we're if we're fishing as long as we're fishing you know if we're trying to say like okay let's find let's buy you know 20 barrels from noah from sterling sterling change your name um we buy 20 mm -hmm. barrels from sterling and we know we want to pair it with like our you know i have a large lot of that i'm looking to move on of 83 and 95 percent wheats in used cooperage from mgp I'll send you a couple samples. They're, they're, they're pretty good. We got a pretty Absolutely. cool program. We're working up with it too. So I'm pretty excited to share it. Um, but like, so when we did it, we're working on this program 
one of the things that we did is we made a bunch of um, hundred or seven fifty samples in the lab, and then you hit them with staves, right? We hit them with staves to see what kind of different toast levels would would do to them, and then we can also hit them with different species, right? And this is what my my work with Evoke and Interstave from IFC. And so then I can say, okay, well, if we did a finish in a type in like a French oak barrel with a profile 27 finish on it, it would kind of come out like this. And that'd be really cool. You know, if we did a finish like this with something like this, you know, it, it, it's a little too spicy. It's not going to work out for us, but we can use that to help us translate to what we want to do. And if we're actually going to use a stave in the barrel or in the tank, you know, that's a direct translation. But often what we're doing is we're fishing for, okay, well, we really like this, this, you know, and it's a simulated sample stave sample. It's not actually like french oak that was seasoned for 18 months with this toast and this toast and this stuff you know it's it's you know this kind of oak would extract like a barrel with like this then we'll go okay rocky tunnel i'll go to tunnelary baron in france i go rocky i need limousine oak or what i've been doing a lot lately is allie a-l-l-i-e-r allie oak allie oak see and this is what happens when a redneck tries to teach himself french you know what i'm saying i'm sitting here i'm like i like the all years oak let me get them all years but uh, I, I don't know. I, we like to think of ourselves sometimes. Well, I don't, but you know, people think of ourselves as coastal elites sometimes. I don't know if I could have pronounced that better. And man, I mean, I honest. like y'all coastal elites. Y'all buy a lot of whiskey. <laughs> that is fair. That is 100% fair. <laughs> the, uh, the, you know, the, the beauty of this industry is it brings so many different people together. You know what I'm saying? Like, like what are the odds you would ever find yourself drinking Keystone Light, moonshining, and watching a NASCAR race in my garage? Before this podcast, absolutely zero. But now, I'd say there's a 50-50 shot. If you ever come to Wisconsin, I'm bringing you to my house. You're going to meet my wife. I'm going to cook for your ass, and we are going to watch some NASCAR. If I, I'd say 100% chance that if I'm coming to Wisconsin, I'm going to be visiting. So Yes. You, you know what I'm saying? But you bring, it brings people like me and, like me and Dr. Pat. Mm-hmm. Totally different people. Totally. But we, we come together because he, he, he helped me. He helped me achieve my goal which is to teach the world about whiskey and to have a great time and to have fun and to take care of my family um you know there's there's dudes that i've used as as consultants that are so buttoned up so prim and proper so you know so the opposite of dave pickerel you know but when dave died and couldn't help us anymore they stepped in you know and i'm thinking specifically this guy he's out of kentucky now his son runs lux row um you know he's been he's he's worked on dozens of distilleries all over the world and he's so far from Dave, but it, we we're brought together by this passion that I have of wanting to teach the world about whiskey, you know, and that's the, the, the really cool thing about this industry is like coastal elites and, you know, podunk rednecks from Wisconsin, you know, the, the one thing that we definitely haven't probably have a couple things in common, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but the one thing that we for sure 100% have in common is we want to learn about whiskey. We want to learn about spirits. You know, what is in my glass? You know, and that's the really cool thing about this industry is you bring people so far, like from opposite ends of the earth. Like, you know who Liz Rhodes is? Heard the name. Remind me. Brilliant, brilliant uh, distiller and engineer. Worked at Dickel for, worked for Diageo for a long time in their labs. That, that's where I'm thinking of. Yeah. She's got a, uh, she got a podcast now with Marty Duffy. And I think she's consulting with a lot of, uh, a lot of distilleries uh distilleries like mine um distilleries that invested they're new they've invested a lot of capital um and they want to do a really good job and she's very analytically driven um but she and i are from opposite ends of every spectrum in the world and i proposed to her 
not literally, but metaphorically, um, as a joke, um, because I just have so much profound respect for, for what she's done with data and letting people in. And it's just, it's cool to see people like that helping people like me. And then on the, on the contrast of it's like, I'm, I'm, like I said, on Wednesday, I'm, I'm flying out to Cali to help somebody, a coastal elite, you know, so more money than sense. They bring in my podunk gas to help with a column, you know, and the only reason I'm able to do that is someone did it for me. His name was Dave Pickerel. His name was P. Cameron. You know, it just, you know, and so it's just, I love that about the industry. It's like all these people that just come together, you know. And think of all the, think of all just, I mean, I'll be selfish. Think of all the podcast guests I've had on so far that we've mentioned or connected with so far. I mean, from, from Alan to Pat Heist, Kelvin, uh, Dave Whitmer over at MGP. Like, you've had Weigel on. You've had, uh, I'm trying to think of some other great ones I've heard from you. Um, the Weigel one got me. You know, I was there when he won Whiskey of the Year, when they, mm-hmm. sorry, when they won Whiskey of the Year. And it's not my story to tell, but you should ask about the story of when he won ADI Whiskey of the Year because we had a party. We had a party. <laughs> oh, that was a good time. And that's someone else from like the opposite side of the world from me. You know what I mean? That yeah, there's a lot of good people in the world. You've had some heaters say, on the podcast. I've I've been really fortunate. I should say I keep looking to the right because I'm I'm literally oh, it's not going to show up too well, but I'm literally taking notes on things that I want to follow up on and ask about and make sure I don't forget about. And um, but yeah, I've been I consider myself to be extremely fortunate so far. Like a couple of my first guests were like Dave Schmier and um, you know. Uh, even Alan being, I think he was number four or five. And uh, by the time I get into my 20, 20th episodes, that's like David Whitmer. And I've got Pam Helm and Mictors in the first 10, like extremely lucky. And I certainly don't take that for granted. And, but exactly what you said is true that, that people just want to tell the story. You know, if you give them the right mm-hmm. platform, give them the right, you know, a prompt here or there, a prod here or there, or a question, like, you know, the, it just, it just flows, you know? Yeah. Like, I don't know about you that I, I may end up splitting this episode because like, I know we're going to go long and I know sometimes longer episodes, like people listen to them, but it's a little harder to listen. Cause like to keep attention for three hours on something, like yeah. we're just not built that way, but yeah. I might split it because like, I want this conversation to keep going. Forrester comes out with a high angel share bottling two years later. And the Jack Daniels rye that came out last year, that was the barrel proof, awesome. or I guess now it's two years ago in 2020. Um, that was just like, that was just liquid candy. Yeah. Oh, so good. Stellar. If you can handle the proof. Oh man. But um, you know, so, so there are some who are harder to crack, but for the most part, distilleries, producers of all sizes want to talk, you know, and the fact that I can have you on with MGP with, you know, Alan, who's literally banging out his own copper stills with a hammer in the backyard, like to figure out new configurations of stuff and, and, uh, catching and cultivating his own yeast and all that, like that's fascinating to me. That all these things are connected. That people are connected. That you know, I, I know there's a couple of people I'm gonna ask you about to maybe make an introduction or two. Um, do you have distribution in New York, by the way? Um, I know we did. I had an issue. You know, when you sell rum chata or any brand like that, that people are making a lot of money off of, and you don't give those people a contract for when you sell it um sometimes people forget about all the good times all the money you've made together and they Mm. decide to treat you punitively and that's really odd thing to like treat treat me punitively 
for something mm-hmm. I did with the brand, you know, that was the right thing. And no one wants to yeah. look at how much money we made right together. No one wants to look mm-hmm. at that. They just want to look at, well, I'm not going to get a bonus this year. Cause it, and so I'm going to be very frank with you. I'm gonna put somebody on blast Southern wine and spirits. I'm so disappointed in what you've done to us in all markets. We were real close to setting up full distribution with them. And then they decided they were going to drop us in all markets, but they held on to us in every market where they had franchise rights. They held on to us, put our, I mean, it would appear that all of our items were put on hold so that people could not order them without special, like getting a hold of your rep and special codes. Um, and then the big one was there's a couple of states where they've actually held us hostage. They've said, we're not going to sell your products. We're not going to order your products. We're not going to bring any product in. And we're also not going to let you go to other distributors unless those distributors want to give us products worth X amount of dollars, even in places where they haven't sold a single case. And uh, New York is a place where we have felt the consequences of that. And I'm hoping that we can get that figured out because I have a couple of the companies I'm working with or four as consultant, mostly on QC, um, where there's a Mezcal was actually a a Tobala that we're bringing out with it. It's not my company. I'm a consultant for them. Um, But it's a a money guy out of New York who's very famous. Um, He's been doing the brand. And uh, I was just hoping I'd have distro there. And I think that it's been fully rolled back. And so we're trying to get back to New York. It's a damn shame. I mean, look, New York, I'm a lifelong New Yorker, born and bred. Um, and I know we get a lot of good shit here. We really do. But you I do. Know you great stuff. We and we get shit from all over the world here. Probably, you know, what got to be one of the top two or three places in the world for just variety of for stuff. Sure. But I know between Southern and Empire, it's just you're held hostage. And it's everyone from the, you know, from you guys as producers on one tier to the retail guys who I know, the bar owners and the uh, liquor store owners I'm talking to who are like, well, Empire decided that, or Southern decided they're not going to show up today. So, you know, no, no drop today. Check in next week. And they're just as pissed as, as, as we are. But I want to end this visit on a happy note. So, um, we, so number one, um, yeah, any and all things you want me to try, man. I am, Bill will tell you, I will try anything once I've even tried Wicked Pickle. I don't <laughs> want to try that again, but I have tried it. It was part of a blind. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I will try pretty much anything in the, in the spirits thing. The only things I won't do, uh, a vodka, unless it's really, really worth it. And I had one that was really, really worth it, but it's, it's pretty rare. And I'll be honest. I don't really love agave spirits. Okay, cool. I don't, I don't like agave syrup either. It's it's the agave. It's not the quality of spirit. It's not the distiller. It's just the flavor. I just don't like it. So are you you sensitive to sulfites, um, in wine? not physically no um like i I don't get headaches or anything from it or the taste with the agave spirits for you mostly you you don't yes it's it's really the taste the smell is fine it's it's once you get to the the actual on the tongue Um, yeah but which is a shame i mean we went to mexico and my wife and i went to mexico and didn't uh, tasting i just just didn't like it give it a fair shot but but anyway so you know i want to um number one definitely have you on again number two try whatever you want me to try i will follow your lead on that um but we got to have you on again to talk about uh get more into staving to talk more about uh oh my god we got to talk more about the malted bourbon we even get to that today yeah um you know we got i want to talk about the uh you know the the 
where you are in terms of like moving from the sourcing and the in-house distilling and and blending those two because I'm I'm talking with a bunch of companies that and about a bunch of companies that have either only sourced, only in-house distilled, but especially those who have only sourced in the past and are trying to make their own dist- uh, distillate and are moving into that, there have been so few that have been successful oh, in yeah. doing that okay. and recreating it. I mean, mostly from MGP, but even from anywhere else, you know, known or unknown, um, that one, I'm curious why people would try because it's, it's not, it's just not working. Yeah, but, it's not for um, anybody. No, but uh, one one brand, and it also happens to be a rye that I really, really like, and they seem to be successful so far, is uh, Sagamore. Yeah, for sure. And, Very successful. And I'm going to, you know, I've tried a bunch of their stuff. There's a new review I just posted today that came out with them. Um, and they're making that transition. They seem to be doing it successfully so far. But I want to talk to you about that um, in-between space that you're in where you're like, we're going to source and we're going to in-house distill. It's not a either or. It's long-term blending the two together. And I mean, those are just a couple of things that we want to talk about. So we will definitely have you back on. Oh, dude, I'll jump back on with you tomorrow if you want me to jump back on tomorrow. I'm sorry, I, didn't, I don't mean to cut you short on this, but or I'll come back whenever you want. I'm, I'm open, but. No, absolutely, absolutely. So just to close out this one, uh, where can people find you? Oh, DG underscore whiskey. So D the letter D letter G and then underscore W I S C Y. I am not famous. No one knows who we are. So I answer every message. If anyone's got any questions for me or um, dancing goat distillery on Instagram and then uh, dancinggoat.com um, uh, is our website. And then I think we got a Facebook too, but I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not on the meta. So. <laughs> All good. All good. And uh, of course you can find me at whiskey, in my wedding ring, whiskey ring podcast uh, or whiskey ring on Twitter uh, website, podcast, all that. I'll be in, make sure to include in the show notes. Uh, Nick, thank you so much, man. We're going to have you back on, but thank you for fantastic conversation tonight. Hang on with me for a minute or so. 110. Thank you for having me, man. This has been a blessing. I really appreciate it. Awesome.